Good morning. Today we will be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. There are two things that I would like for us to gather from our text this morning. The sufficient and radical nature of Christ's atoning sacrifice and the impact and importance of this act on us. If you would, please join me for a word of prayer. God, thank you for giving us your word. May we delve into it and get everything we can from it. And God, may this message help us all, including myself, to come to a deeper understanding of you and who you are and how who you are affects what we do. Hallowed be thy name. May all glory be unto you. Amen. Let's see. Now we will read our scripture. We are in the second chapter of the book of Galatians, verses 19 through 21. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Alright, so now might be an appropriate time to provide some context for our text. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing the false teaching of a faction within the early church known as Judaizers. These Judaizers were teaching a doctrine that was not only contradictory towards the gospel, but was essentially opposed to the gospel. This group was teaching that in order to be saved, so to speak, one had to not only trust in the sacrifice of Christ, but one must also obey the Mosaic law. Now this idea is false on multiple levels. First and foremost, the idea that Christ alone does not deliver us from our human condition, from our sin, discounts the foundations on which our faith is built. The idea that in order to obtain our salvation, we must do anything, that we can even do anything to somehow earn the favor of God, stands in stark contradiction to the teachings of Christ, the actions of Christ, and the words of God himself. We are delivered from sin through faith in God by the grace of God. This is it. There is no other way to salvation. God saves us. We do not save ourselves. However, the Judaizers were proposing the idea that obedience to the law brought one into a right relationship with God. Paul puts this to rest a few verses earlier in the book when he writes in chapter 2 verse 16... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now this portion of the text is crucial because it lays out a clear truth about the Old Testament law. And I would even uh, venture to say about human action in general. It does not justify. The law never saved. The law never will save. Christ saves. Christ is the only thing which can save. Paul explicitly states that the only way to be justified, the only way to be reconciled with God is by faith in Christ. Nothing, nothing else, not even the law can save. However, this is where the Judaizers began to teach heresy, began to contradict the gospel itself. As soon as the move was made to say Christ and the law were necessary for justification, the truth of the salvistic power of Christ's death on the cross was forfeited. 
The moment that Christ is no longer sufficient for salvation, there is no salvation. As soon as Christ is not everything, there is only nothing. This is an important fact to grasp before we even begin to delve into the meat of our text this morning. And at risk of sounding repetitive, I'm going to reiterate this one more time. Faith in Christ, by the grace of God, is the only thing that can justify. Faith in Christ, allowed for us to have by the grace of God, is the only thing that can make us right with God. Only God can reconcile us to God. And God did this on the cross. It is not any work of man that makes him right with God. Now, I think it is obvious that we should try to live in line with the commandments of God. Doing so leads to fulfillment and a right walk with God. And we certainly do have things which we are commanded to do as Christians. And I would even say that for those believers who came from a Jewish background, obedience to the precincts of Mosaic law might have helped them in their walk with Christ. This tradition might have held a sort of spiritual richness that allowed them to better engage with God. However, our obedience does not justify us. We are justified by Christ, not our works, however good those works might be. Justification is being made right with God. Justification is the payment we owe to God. It's the payment of the debt we owe to God. This debt is paid by Christ and by Christ's work alone. Now, if Christ alone is the source of all justification, and the law did not and cannot justify, what then is the purpose of the law? Why did the law even exist if obedience to it cannot deliver us from our human condition, from our sinfulness, from the death that is part and parcel of our life apart from God? It is bearing these questions in mind that I would like for us to examine the passage for this morning in more detail, beginning with verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. For through the law, I died to the law. Let's take this first part and break it down a little. It's here that we begin to see why the law was ever given to mankind. You see, it is through obedience to the law that we come to be liberated from it by death to it. In other words, the law is the agency of our own death to it. You see, the law sets out requirements for holiness. The law lays out clearly exactly what the human subject has to do in order to be viewed as holy by God. If the law were to be followed perfectly, I want to emphasize that perfectly, then the human subject would be able to, by his own effort, obtain justification to be reconciled with God. However, Paul refers multiple times to the curse of the law, to something that is embedded in the very nature of the law itself that hurts us, that, according to the text we are looking at this morning, kills us. There is something about the law that brings death to us, something about the nature of the set of commandments that leads to our complete and utter destruction. While it would be possible for man to justify himself should he follow the law perfect, he cannot follow the law very well at all, much less perfectly. The curse of the law is that the law is unfulfillable. Now, if the law is a set of requirements that must be fulfilled, and man is utterly incapable of fulfilling these requirements, 
and the consequences for these, con- for these uh, fulfillments remaining unfulfilled is death, then the law, by the very fact of its unfulfillable nature, will lead to the death of the person who must fulfill it. It was a little confusing. I'll just I'll say that again. The law sets out requirements that have to be fulfilled. We cannot fulfill these requirements. The punishment for us not fulfilling these requirements is death. Death in the most potent sense. Spiritual death. Because we cannot fulfill these requirements, we are subject to this consequence. In other words, since we cannot meet the requirements of the law, we are subject to the punishments of the law. This is the purpose of the law, not to justify but to spell out the unfulfillable requirements for justification, the unfulfillable requirements that separate us from God and His holiness. The law functions primarily to show us what we would have to do in order to be reconciled with God. It shows us the requirements that we cannot and never will be able to fulfill. Because we cannot fulfill the requirements of the law, it only follows logically that we are subject to the punishments of the law. The punishment of the law for sinners is death. Like I said, death in the most potent sense. Spiritual and eternal death. A separation from God. A separation from anything meaningful. The punishment of the just requirements for sinners is death. The law kills us because it condemns us. The law condemns us justly. Because of the condemnation of the law, we are dead. Because we are dead, we are dependent wholly on the grace of God for life. This is what it means to die to the law. To die to the law is to find yourself irrevocably separated from God and subject to the type of spiritual death that comes with this condition by your inability to make yourself right with God. We are sinners We are dead in the presence of God's infinite holiness. We are dead because we are unable to save ourselves. The law condemns us and by condemning us, it kills us. Because it kills us, it makes us dependent on God's grace. God's justice makes us dependent on God's grace. Now we have established exactly what it means to die to the law. When you die to the law, we are, in a sense, liberated from the law. Now, some of you might be thinking that this is a bit of a gear shift from where we just were. First, you're going on about death and justice, and now you're talking about life and liberation. You know, where are you trying to take this? Well, the point I feel that the text is making is that death through the requirements of God and life by the grace of God are mutually inclusive, tit and tat, part and parcel. God set up requirements that we could never meet, then gave us a grace that we could never merit. Because of this grace, we are able to receive the life of the grace of God. The requirements of the law lead us to death. Our death leads us to dependence on grace. And our dependence on grace leads us to a new life. We are dead to the requirements of the law because the grace of God is sufficient to meet those requirements. Because His grace is sufficient, I am dead to the law, so that I might live to God. This brings us to the next portion of the text. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Because the grace of God is sufficient to meet the requirements of the law, it is sufficient enough to justify us, as we have seen in verse 16. Because the grace of God is sufficient for our justification... 
It is sufficient enough to restore us to a right relationship with God. And a right relationship with God is when we live to God. The sinner who is justified is revived. The sinner who is revived is revived to live. The sinner who is revived to live is revived to live to God. What is being laid out in the text is the idea that God delivers us from the punishment he could justly give us. That we justly deserve. You see, the law sets out very clearly the requirements for holiness. And man always falls short of these requirements. However, God, without having to, extends grace to us that we do not deserve in spite of our failing to meet these requirements. Now, this is really a radical concept. Because of this unmerited grace, our death to the law leads to life to God. The fact that we die to the law and live to God means that our death is the result of our own insufficiency and our life is the result of God's grace. We are dead because of who we are, but we are alive because of who God is. I have been crucified with Christ. This is the next portion of the text. Here in verse 20, we see what it means to die to the law. You see, Christ came in order to fulfill the law. If you would, please turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 17. Give you a second to turn there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In this verse, Jesus lays out exactly why he came to this earth. He lays out the exact nature and importance of the gospel. As we have already established, the law set out requirements for holiness that could never be met by us, by sinners. Because of this, sinners are wholly dependent on the grace of God to fulfill the requirements set forth by the law of God. When Christ came, he came to fulfill these requirements. I think it is worth noting that Christ never says he came to get rid of these requirements. It's been said in Christian circles, particularly certain Protestant theological camps, that when Christ came, the law was made completely irrelevant. And while there is a certain degree of truth to this for believers, because we are liberated from what Paul calls the yoke of slavery of the law, we have these uh, requirements of the law have been fulfilled for us. And that does not make these requirements... Irrelevant in general. Just because these requirements are fulfilled for us does not mean these requirements no longer exist for everyone else. A better way to think of this would be to compare it to a parking ticket. Now, this is a pretty weak analogy, but bear with me for a little bit. When you get a parking ticket, you generally have to pay a fine. Now, for a college student such as myself, a fine of a few hundred dollars can be pretty devastating. Between books, gas, and Starbucks, I'm pretty much bled dry when it comes to money. (laughs) Now, the fine that you have to pay as a college student when you pull through a parking spot or clip the mirror of the university president's Mercedes-Benz, not that I've done that, is is (laughs) analogous to the requirements of the law. There's a set amount of money that has to be paid, just like there are fixed requirements for the human subject to reconcile itself to God. It does not matter what your intentions were when you got the ticket, how nice of a person you are, how much money you have or don't have, the fine has to be paid or the fine has to be revoked. 
Some way or another, the requirements of the parking ticket have to be fulfilled. Justice, even in this very, very small-scale example, has to be served. Christ is the payment for the debt of our sins. Christ fulfilling the law ends our life under the law. When Christ fulfills the law, we die to the law that we might live to God. The only way that we can die through the law is through the law. Through the fulfillment of the law in the personage of Jesus Christ on the cross. And his atoning work on the cross. The only way this death to the law, through the law is achieved is through the unmerited grace of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Which fulfilled the law. Paid the debt. Justice was served on the cross. The requirements of the law no longer have a hold on me. The debt for me has been paid. However, this is not the full extent of what is entailed by the fulfillment of the law. Not only has the debt been paid, but we who accept this fulfillment of our requirements for all intents and purposes die. I have been put to death. As the verse says, I have been crucified with Christ. Who I was died when Christ paid my debt on the cross. Who I was Died. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 illustrates this point in an abundantly clear manner. The verse says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is fascinating because this is precisely the same concept being described in our text in Galatians this morning. When we are crucified with Christ, who we were up until the point is dead, dead to the law, dead to God, dead to the requirements set upon it, and, most importantly, dead to ourselves. Our entire orientation in life changes. We are no longer slaves, slaves to the requirement of the law or slaves to our own sinful nature, but instead we are liberated from the damning nature of our own sinful past. We are dead to ourselves. Who we were has been obliterated. We are dead to who we were and now we live to the God who extended his unmerited grace to us. Let it be clear before we move on to the final portion of the text that this grace is entirely unmerited. We do nothing to deserve the grace of God. The human race did nothing to deserve anything besides the law to spell out exactly why we deserve to burn in hell. That is what we deserve. We are sinners. We are unholy. We are an offense and an affront to God. The principle of justice demands that we meet the requirements set forth for us. And when that principle is the living up to the holiness of God, we are totally inadequate. Just like a fine issued by a court of law, the requirements of God's holiness must be fulfilled. The debt must be paid or the debt must be revoked. For those of us who have accepted the gift of Christ's sacrifice, that debt has been paid. And we didn't earn it. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The ideas of the text flow in a very logically consistent manner. If we have been crucified with Christ, and if we live to God after having been crucified with Christ, then it only follows that it is no longer ourselves who live, but in a very real sense, Christ who lives in us. 
This is a beautifully continuous block of text. The ideas flow together seamlessly. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The law sets out requirements that must be met. Christ meets these requirements. Because of this, we can enjoy a new life. I would like to look at the last portion of text in more detail. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of the life we have in dying to the law and living to Christ, we are called to live a certain way. I would like to end our time together this morning by elaborating exactly what this type of life looks like. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Life by faith. To live by faith is to live in such a way that the fact that we are still living in the flesh as sinful beings does not stop us from walking with Christ. To live by faith is to live in such a way that it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And as believers, in order to live this way, we must repent. We must always repent. If you are a believer, you will only progress in your walk if you repent of the sin in your life and turn to Christ. Turn to the type of life to God that we are called to have as believers. If you have not yet trusted in the all-sufficient work of Christ on the cross alone, then you must repent in order to experience the sufficient grace of Christ and the life it brings. This leads us to our next point of practical application. Come to a fuller understanding of what Christ has done for you. Come to a fuller understanding of the gospel. You must come to the realization that, as we have discussed, the work of Christ and the grace of God is sufficient. It is sufficient to save you, it is sufficient to keep you, and it is sufficient to grow you. The more you meditate on this, the deeper and fuller of an understanding you have of this. The deeper and fuller of an understanding you have of this the more we will be prompted to gospel-fueled, God-glorifying action. Now, what that action exactly is might be different for each person. I cannot look into a crowd of roughly 400 or so people and tell each person specifically what they need to do in order to further live to God. However, you will come to these type of individual realizations when you A, repent and turn from your sin to Christ who justified you from it, and B, Meditate and contemplate the grace that allows you to repent in the first place. You see, because we live to God, we live a life regulated by the sovereign will of God. This will can only be discerned and lived out on the individual level if the individual is in a state of realization of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, which leads to repentance of sin, engagement with the teachings of Christ, and compliance with his sovereign will once his will has been discerned. In just a moment, the altar will be open. If you feel convicted of your sin, of your inadequacy to reconcile yourself to God, I would like to plead with you to accept the sufficient grace of God, the only thing that can reconcile you to God, the only thing that can liberate you from the death that is your life apart from Him. If you are a believer, I would like to urge you to contemplate the sufficiency of Christ and the nature of the unmerited grace He has extended to you. 
I would like for you to think about the grace that saved you and think about ways you could live to propagate this grace and glorify your God. If you would, please join me in a word of prayer. God, the altar is now open. I pray that you reach out and convict those who it is in your will to convict. God, I pray that you move believers to repentance and sinners to repentance. God, hallowed be thy name. May all glory be unto you. Amen.